Please go ahead and open your Bibles up to Revelation 3, verse 7. Due to our technical issues, you're not getting the help of the screens today. So get those Bibles and Bible apps open. We want to be people that are in God's Word, seeing God's Word, reading God's Word, feasting on God's Word today. Have you ever heard of the phrase or used the phrase, good things come to those that wait? Is that familiar to you? It's used in numerous circumstances. Everything from a parent who's trying to convince a child that delayed gratification is going to actually, they're going to enjoy that a whole lot more than the thing they're clamoring for that they want right now. You might be a financial advisor who's talking to a panicking client when the market takes a little bit of a dip and wants to just sell everything and, and get out. Just hold on, hold on. Have some patience in this time. Just two weeks ago, Psychology Today posted an article where they, they're, they're positing, they're going to try and answer the questions, do good things really come to those that wait? Is patience really a virtue? Well, ultimately, it really doesn't matter what Psychology Today came up with because the Bible gives us very definitive answers to these questions. We're going to see today in the, church, to the letter to the church in Philadelphia that Jesus is there commending them for their patient endurance, for their patient endurance. Now, like Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia does not receive any correction at all. They only receive commendation and instruction. And in the midst of very difficult circumstances, Jesus is encouraging this church in their faithfulness. And he's not just saying to them, great job, church. He is promising them incredible rewards if they keep it up. Now, specifically today, what we're going to see is that Jesus, the sovereign Christ, promises access, vindication, protection, and identification to those who patiently endure. Let me say that again if you're writing that down. Jesus the sovereign Christ promises you access, vindication, protection, and identification if you patiently endure. Let's get right into this text and read the whole passage. It's Revelation 3, starting in verse 7 and going to verse 13. This is God's word to us. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. 
and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Now, we're going to dive into this passage by first looking at how Jesus identifies himself to the church. We've seen this pattern in the letters where Christ always identifies himself at the beginning. We're going to look at how he identifies himself to Philadelphia. We're going to look at the specific promises that he makes. And then we're going to explore this idea of patient endurance a little bit. So our first point today is Jesus is sovereign over salvation. Jesus is sovereign over salvation. Now, Philadelphia was located in the Roman district of Lydia. It's the same district that Sardis was actually the capital of, Sardis that Nathan taught us on last week. Um, and Sardis was that governing capital. Philadelphia was a very small but significant town. It was very rural, but um, located on a major highway about 36 miles southeast of Sardis. It was also about 20 miles from an active volcano. That meant that it had very fertile soil, and due to access to that, the quality and the abundance of their grape and their wine industry was renowned. They were also heavily influenced by Greek culture, Greek culture, and eventually that city would become known as Little Athens because of this and because of just the pervasiveness of Hellenism in the city there. However, as you can imagine, one of the downsides of building a city that's close to a volcano is the risk of a catastrophe. And in the year A.D. 17, this city was almost destroyed completely by a volcanic eruption. It was so bad that the Roman emperor Tiberius, he even ceased collecting taxes for five years. I mean, the pervasiveness of the poverty from this natural disaster had just made it not even worth the effort to try and collect taxes. This place was so poor. So the church in Philadelphia was poor. They were small. And they were weak. Jesus even said in verse 8, I know you have little power. It's to this church that Jesus identifies himself in three ways. Let's look again at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Let's take these one at a time. First, we have the Holy One. Quite simply here, Jesus is saying, I'm God. He's identifying himself as deity. This name, the Holy One, is used throughout Scripture, and it's especially prevalent in the John's God's term to affirm that Jesus was God-made flesh. He was the Holy One. He was God. We also will see when we get to Revelation 6.10 in a few weeks that Jesus is identified there as the sovereign Lord, holy and true. And true is the second way that Jesus identifies himself to this church, the true one. This Greek word translated true here, it's almost never used for people because it describes someone who is completely, completely reliable. That's what it means here to be true. In Revelation 6.10 that I just mentioned a second ago, Christ's sovereignty is mentioned there. It's holiness and his truthfulness. And there it's all in the context of his judging and avenging. 
Later in Revelation 19, we're going to see Jesus come to judge and destroy all those who have opposed him. And he's called in that passage faithful and true. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus said, he has the keys to death and hell. And he's about to amplify that here in chapter 3. This third way that Jesus identifies himself is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, this description may sound really cryptic to you and I, almost like something that Hollywood made up for the plot of an Indiana Jones movie or something like that. But this is actually a direct allusion to Isaiah 22. I'm going to read Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 22, so that we can better understand the emphasis that Jesus is making here to this church in Philadelphia. So listen closely to what Isaiah 22 says verses 20 through 22 say. It says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut, and none shall open. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? See, this was an oracle against Shebna, describing the Lord's judgment on him. Shebna was a royal steward to King Hezekiah, and the royal steward generally controlled the treasury. It oversaw the affairs of the royal estate, and often even had some control over military assets. And Shebna's condemned by Isaiah because of his self-seeking pride in leading Jerusalem. And as a result, Jerusalem is now too self-reliant on it, relying on itself instead of relying on God. In short, Shebna's going to be stripped of this authority, stripped of honor, and it's going to be given to Eliakim. And it said Eliakim would then be the father of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah, the people of God, determining who can get in and who cannot get in. So let's go back to Revelation 3. What Jesus is saying is that he is the one who has authority over the kingdom of God. He has the key of David. He determines who gets into that kingdom and who does not get into that kingdom. Jesus is not only claiming to be sovereign, he is saying he has supreme authority to grant or deny entrance into his kingdom, and everyone else is powerless to overrule his decree. What he opens, no one can shut. Jim Hamilton comments that here in this place, God's basically asserting himself as unstoppable. He's saying, I can't be stopped in what I'm trying to do in my supreme authority. In one verse, to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says, I'm holy, I'm God. I am true in all things, including my judgments, and it is I alone who has the authority to save. And furthermore, there is nothing or no one who can challenge my authority or my power to do what I want to do, what I purpose to do. If I open it, no one can shut it. If I shut it, no one can open it. Jesus is God, sovereign and true in his judgments, 
And he's able to execute them. So why would Jesus want to make sure these believers in Philadelphia were very clear on this? It's because he's making promises to them, and he wants to make sure they know he can deliver. Okay? So let's look at point number two. Let's look at these promises a little closer. It's Jesus promises access, vindication, protection, and identification. Those four things are access, vindication, protection, and identification. Now, I already mentioned that Philadelphia was similar to Smyrna and that they only received commendation. They're also similar in that they are being persecuted by what the Bible says here is the synagogue of Satan, the ones who say they're Jews but are not. Liars is what Jesus says they are in verse 9. Now, a few weeks ago, Mike spent some time describing this group and their actions in detail. I'm not going to repeat all of that, but let's suffice it to say that this small, weak church was being persecuted. They were being ostracized by those who are lying and those who claimed that they were the true people of God, not the Christians. As Mike described, this would have marginalized these believers it would have excluded them from many commerce activities and other critical interactions in the city. Yet in the midst of this, in the midst of this persecution, this ostracizing, this shunning, this being excluded, the true believers in Philadelphia have been faithful. What an accommodation. They've been faithful. They have not diluted their practice. They have not diluted their proclamation of Christ in His name even though it has resulted in great social and economic cost to them. They have been faithful. The end of verse 8, it says, I know you have but little power, yet you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. In verse 10, Jesus expands on this further by saying, you have kept my word about patient endurance. This church is poor, small, weak, and suffering but they have not wavered. Rather, they've stayed true and even endured patiently. We're going to look closer at patient endurance a little bit later in this sermon, but let's first look at these four promises that Jesus has made to these believers because they've kept his word and patiently endured. The first promise was access, the promise of access. These believers have been denied access to many aspects of society. Their persecutors are lying to them. They are lying about them, saying they're not part of the kingdom of God. These people, liars are saying that they're outside of the kingdom. They're outside of the blessing. They're outside of the promise. They are not true followers of God. But Jesus started this letter saying, I am God. I am true. I'm, I'm reliable. I alone control access to my kingdom. And in verse 8, he tells this church, he has set before them an open door that no one can shut. God is promising them access to his kingdom. And he asserts that the liars have no say in the matter. It's like someone who's appointed themselves to guard the one entrance of a royal palace. And this self-appointed royal bouncer is trying to forbid these personally invited guests of the king from entering into the palace, turning them away, access denied, and then the king shows up at the front door. 
and says, I say they get in. Move aside. Christ's followers are welcomed into the kingdom by the king. When others exclude you, Jesus welcomes you. You come on his terms. Let's make no mistake about that. You're not coming on your own terms. You come on his terms, but you are welcome, and no one else has the power to thwart his wishes or invalidate his invitation to you. He is sovereign. We see this again in verse 12 when Jesus promises that the one who conquers will be a pillar in the temple of God and shall never go out of it. Jesus is assuring this church in Philadelphia and all believers, he's saying to them, I've got you. I've got you. No one can deny you access or remove you from my blessing of eternal welcome and fellowship with me. If you are a true follower of Christ and you struggle with doubts about your salvation, let this give you some very sweet encouragement. If you experience godly sorrow when you sin, you repent to the Lord, you can rest in the faithfulness of the one of whom John says in his first epistle that he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness until you experience the fullness of this promise in eternity with Christ. In one sense, New Testament believers, they get a taste of this as the Holy Spirit comes into each believer in fullness when they are saved. Right now, right now, if you are a follower of Christ, you are experiencing the appetizer of eternal access to Christ through His Spirit living in you. As a believer, Christ lives in you. When you go to the grocery store or the workplace or school, Christ is with you in the Spirit living in you. When you're watching TV, when you're surfing the internet, Christ is with you. When you're kneeling in your bedroom, with tears streaming down your face, Christ is with you. The Spirit of Christ is with you and in you. And the New Testament says that this gift of the Spirit is the guarantee, it's the proof of the inheritance that awaits us in heaven. You have access in Christ. Second promise is the promise of vindication. Let's look at verse 9 again. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. You see, the truth is going to come out. The lies will be exposed. That which is not true will be revealed for what it is. The lie that God does not love the believers in Philadelphia will be proven to be false, and those who are spewing these lies we'll learn that Jesus has loved this church. There will be no doubt remaining that Christ's people are the objects of his affections. We see in Scripture that Christ infuses light into darkness. He takes people from darkness into light. You see, lies are going to be shown for what they are. The truth is going to come out. The true one will testify to what is true and expose the falsehoods. If people are speaking lies about you, that truth is going to come out. 
And likewise, if you're keeping secrets and you think they're hidden in the darkness of your heart, they will be brought from darkness into light. The true one will prove what's false to be exactly that false and will show what truth is there. The third promise that's in this uh, letter is the promise of protection. So quite simply, there is safety in Christ. Let's look at verse 10 again. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So fair question is what exactly is this talking about here? Does this mean that believers are going to be spared from suffering? Is that what this is saying here? Well, the quick answer to that is, of course not. It's not true. Yet Jesus has promised protection in the midst of suffering. So what exactly is the nature of this protection? Because, you know, martyrs are a real thing. They exist. Were those people not protected? What does Jesus mean here in this promise of protection? In John 16, Jesus tells his followers to have peace in the midst of trials and tribulation because he has overcome the world. We're told in Romans and in James to rejoice in our sufferings, to count it as all joy when we experience trials and tribulation. I could go on and on with what the Bible says, but we need to understand what is Jesus promising when he says that he's keeping the Philadelphia believers from the trial that is coming on the whole world, on those who dwell on the earth. Well, that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is really critical to our understanding here. It's actually used nine times in the book of Revelation. And when it is used, each time it's used, it is used exclusively to refer to the unsaved, especially those who worship idols. Those who dwell on the earth is referring to the unsaved. When we combine this with the context of how Jesus has identified himself to this church as the sovereign one over salvation, Jesus is telling this church, because you have kept my word and patiently endured, I will protect you and spare you from the judgment I will be bringing on those who do not worship me. There's a judgment coming, but you're safe. You're protected. He's not promising them an absence of trial or suffering. He's promising them an absence of the final wrathful justice on those who do not follow him. Greg Beale comments on Jesus' promise here to keep the believers by saying this. He says, according to Jesus' words, believers will endure physical suffering, but will be kept spiritually safe in the midst of it. When you experience trials, Jesus has promised to keep you spiritually safe as he sovereignly works out his good purpose in you. Hear this, in the midst of of your worst suffering. Jesus himself is protecting you. He's guarding your soul. He's keeping you safe. The fourth promise that he gives this church is the promise of identification. Let's look at verse 12 again. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven 
and my own new name. Jesus says here he's writing three things on the one who conquers. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. Now, this biblical concept of naming, it's rooted in the ancient world's understanding that a name expressed essence. To know someone's name was to know their total character, their, their nature. A name could also be used to express character and hopes for the future for someone. And at times, a name change might occur that speaks to a transformation that's occurring with someone, their character or their destiny. A couple of biblical examples of this is we see the Apostle Paul who wrote many of the letters in the New Testament. His name was Saul before his conversion. And then when Christ literally knocked him off his horse, Paul gets saved and his name changes from Saul to Paul. Saul gets saved and his name gets changed to Paul. In Genesis, after God made covenant with Abram, promising that he would make nations from Abram's offspring, Abram's name, which meant high father, is changed to Abraham, which means father of multitudes. In Revelation 3, Jesus is saying that something transformative happens to those that he saves. They're given a new name, a new character, a new essence, a new identity. See, the way that my children were identified as mine when they were born is they were given my last name. They were a Warren. They were now identified as a member of the Warren family. God is identifying his people as his. They have the family name. They're also identified with the city of God, the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is the people of God. We're going to spend a lot of time on that later in Revelation, so I'm not going to talk much about that right now. Last but not least, Jesus says that he's giving them his own new name. He is saying, you and I, we are identified together. We are in union with each other. Jesus promises a new identity to his children, a new essence as he makes us new creations. And he gives us permanent membership into his family joined with all other believers. How incredible these promises are. Jesus promises access, vindication, protection, and identification to those who keep his word about patient endurance. Do you see yourself through that lens? Do you see yourself as a protected one in unrestricted fellowship with the Holy One? Do you see yourself guarded as precious members of God's family? Well, there is an important condition in this letter that we need to spend some time considering, and it's the last point today. It's God's people must patiently endure. God's people must patiently endure. There are many people in this local church experiencing suffering and trials of various kinds and of various severity. And as we dive into this last point today, I want to say this. I believe the Lord wants to both encourage us and equip us with this hard work of patiently enduring. My prayer this week has been 
that you will experience the compassionate care of the chief shepherd as we explore what it means to patiently endure. Jesus commended the Philadelphia church for keeping his word about patient endurance. He said, I see you and you're doing well. And then in verse 11, he continues, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. In light of Jesus' imminent return, he commands them to keep it up. He says, hold fast. Don't let go. Don't let up. Don't give up. Keep on keeping on. Keep patiently enduring so that no one can take away your crown. And again, similar to Smyrna, this church has promised this crown, this sign of victory, if they don't give up or let up and keep enduring. Now, the word translated endurance here in this passage, here's what it means. It means having the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Picture that for a second. Create a little word picture in your mind. Having the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. Now, in contrast, here's what endurance is not. Endurance is not caving in. It's not quitting. It's not surrendering to difficult circumstances. It's not just resigning yourself to a fatalistic outlook on life. It's not sliding down into the dark, downward spirals of self-pity, self-loathing, bitterness, hopelessness, worry, and fear. Like, let's be honest, those things never, never make it better. They never improve the situation, and quite frankly, honestly, they often make it worse. Rather, in, this endurance is an active choice to trust in something greater, something more powerful, more glorious, more true and ultimate that promises in Romans 8 that there is good for you in the midst of this trial and at the end of this trial. Endurance is all about putting your trust and hope in God obeying His commands, keeping His word. And believers are instructed here in Revelation and numerous other places throughout the Bible to do this patiently. Patiently. Not frantically. Not in a state of panic, worry, fear, anxiety. And quite often, it's not necessarily on our timeline either. Jesus commands his people to endure, but not just endure, to endure patiently. The writer of Hebrews knew this. In Hebrews 10, 36, he says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see this connection between enduring and promises. When Jesus sent his disciples out to minister in Matthew 10, he said, Hey, you're going to be hated by everyone. You're going to be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here Jesus alludes to a really important reality regarding endurance. You don't really need endurance to do something fun. You don't need endurance to do that thing that's really enjoyable to you. 
Okay, picture this. Imagine your favorite food. Think about it. You've got a picture in your mind of what your favorite food is. Hypothetically, let's say it is a rich, dark chocolate, super moist cake with rich, creamy frosting on it and juicy raspberries or strawberries on top of it. Would you have to endure eating that if that was your favorite food? I can't imagine having to endure taking a bite of something like that. Brussels sprouts, however, for me, that is, every bite is a test of endurance and of my gag reflex, if I'm honest. The point is this, though. Endurance is not built up in you by experiencing enjoyable things. It's the result of hard things. It's the result of suffering. In James 1, 2 through 4, there's these familiar verses. Listen to them. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you're like me in my trials, I often want my trial to go away because I feel like that trial is creating a lack of something, an incompleteness. And if that trial would go away, I'd feel more complete. God's Word says the trial is what's going to produce endurance, and endurance is what's going to make you perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. In Romans 5, Paul says that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We've already said that suffering is not absent from the Christian life. Do not believe a false gospel that says otherwise. Certainly, sometimes suffering is the result of our own sin, and we need to repent immediately in those situations. However, that's not the cause for all suffering. God sovereignly ordains suffering in our lives at times to accomplish His perfect purposes. At salvation, God started a good work in us that Philippians 1.6 promises God's going to get it done. He's going to bring it to completion in us. And that work requires the refiner's fire on our heart. It requires a conforming of our mind to His truth and a transforming of our heart to forsake all the idols that we worship, the idols that we bow, bow down to like other people's approval, our own comfort, our own pleasure, our own glory, our own plans, our own kingdom objectives. God's requirement of us is to patiently endure as he, like a very skilled surgeon, gets into our hearts and cleans out the infections that are leading to death, not life. We endure in these times by trusting in him, trusting in his character, trusting in his promises, trusting in his track record of perfect faithfulness. For those of you that like sports analogies, Jesus is undefeated in his promises. He's undefeated. He's unstoppable. There are three things in particular that can help us as we remember of trusting in God. So let's think about these three things that are going to help us trust in God. 
First is this, God's completely sovereign. We've seen this already in Revelation 3, but it's, it's evident throughout the entire storyline of the Bible. Job, after enduring an epic amount of suffering, says this, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God can get it done. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over nations, over rulers, over governments, over people, over your coworkers, over your kids, over every circumstance in your life. For example, do you have someone in your life or have had someone in your life that seems determined to sabotage you? At every opportunity they have, they just seem to be trying to cut you down. Jerry Bridges says quite succinctly, is someone out to get you? That person absolutely cannot execute his malicious plan unless God has first decreed it. God is not desperately trying to regain control of the situations in your life that are so distressing to you. No one has outpowered God, wrested control away from him. He is God. He is completely sovereign. And admittedly, this thoroughly comprehensive authority of the Lord, this could be really scary if these next two things are not also true. God is infinite in his wisdom. He's infinitely wise. Romans eleven thirty three 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's wisdom may be beyond our comprehension, but he is infinite in his wisdom. He is perfectly wise. He's also perfect in love. At the end of Romans 8, we have the familiar verses to many of us declaring that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not death nor life, not things present, not things happening right now, and not things to come, not the things you're worrying about in the future. None of that can separate us from the love of God. The Philadelphia church and us can trust Jesus because he's ruling over all things, and he's infinitely wise in the exercise of his authority and power, and he does this with the same perfect love that compelled him to go to the cross and take the punishment and wrath of the sin his people had done upon himself. This Jesus, this Christ is the one sustaining them as they patiently endure the trial that God is bringing them through that's going to result in their good and God's glory. And he does the exact same thing for you. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul comments on a trial that he and his companions are experiencing. He says, we don't want you to not be aware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were, listen to this description, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's pretty bleak. But then he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God commands all of his people to patiently endure until he returns. 
He wants us to rely on Him who raises the dead and not on our own strength and wisdom and power. And the promises He gives to the Philadelphia church and to us are access, vindication, protection, and identification. Here's a very critical point, though. We'd be remiss if we don't mention this. This happens, this patient endurance, this happens in the context of community. This doesn't happen in isolation. The New Testament is littered with commands and practices of believers who are living in community together. They're building each other up. They're loving one another, encouraging one another, correcting one another, caring for one another, forgiving one another. For me to patiently endure, I need you. I need you. I need you to remind me that I have access to the Father when I feel isolated and alone. I need reminded by you that the Lord is working for my good when it seems only bad things are happening to me. I need reminded that my definition of good and bad are generally messed up because they're based on my priorities, my wishes, my comfort, and not God's glory and God's kingdom purposes. I need reminded by you that the treasure of Jesus is worth every cost. It's worth every cost that may be required of me on this side of eternity. And I need reminded by you that when I stumble, the Lord is loving me with an everlasting love. And he says to me, Christopher, you are mine. You are mine, and no one can change that. And you know what? You need that too. You need every bit of that as well. And that doesn't happen when you carve yourself away during difficult times. It happens when you go to a brother or sister and you're honest and you're transparent, and you say, I know this isn't true, but this is how I feel. And they can breathe the Word of God on you. They can encourage you. They can come alongside and fight for you and with you in prayer. We do this together. God knew this. It's why the church exists. Friends, do you believe that? Do you see yourself as having these same promises as the Philadelphia church? Consider your daily thoughts, your daily routines, your daily actions. Do they proclaim a confident conviction of Christ's sufficiency to you? Are there any specific areas of your life where you know you're not trusting God completely? At least not first. Where you're not patiently enduring. Where instead you're grumbling you're complaining, you're worrying, you're fighting to control things that you have no ability to control. Are you placing your hope or your expectation on anything other than God to fix what you see as broken in your world and in your life? If so, put your trust in God. Patiently endure. When you trust in things other than God, you find that they're either broken also, they're part of the problem, or they just are simply unable to fix the brokenness in your world and in your own heart. 
They just can't deliver. The things we look to other than God are lousy saviors. They are not faithful and true. If you've never trusted in God as your only means of salvation, if you're here and you've not repented of your sins and purposed to be a follower of Christ, then these promises, sadly, are not for you. But they can be. They can be for you if you turn from your sin, if you trust in God alone to save you and choose to live for His glory and His purposes. If that's you, please talk with me after the service or somebody that you came with today. We want you to have this access, vindication, protection, and identification that can be yours in Christ. God has invited each of us to hope in Him, to trust in His sovereign ability to deliver us, to change us, and to protect us, to spiritually preserve us until we are all enjoying the fulfillment of every single one of God's promises in eternity with Christ. Christ has promised that good things come to those that wait. Good things come to those that patiently endure by trusting in Him and His promises. And He gives grace to His followers to do this. If there are areas in your life, I challenge you to look for areas where you're not trusting the Lord. If there are areas where you are, don't neglect to give thanks to God for His grace to you in that. God is working in every single one of His kids. Every single one of those that follow him, God is at work in there. There is grace, evidence of that grace in your life if you look for it. And when you look for it, there's probably opportunities to grow as well. I want to read, I want to read the lyrics of a song that we were going to sing here at the end, but with the lack of lyrics. I'm just going to read it to you. When Christ our life appears, our hope will be complete. Our longing finally rests as we fall at His feet. When Jesus comes to reign, restoring everything, our tears will turn to tides of praises to our King. We're longing for that day. When Christ our life appears, the curse will be undone. All wickedness will end as mercy overcomes. The Savior will renew what sin had torn apart. His light will drive the shadows from our weary hearts. We're longing for that day. When Christ, our life, appears, these trials that weighed us down will fade and fall away as He receives our crowns. And death will disappear, its rule and reign destroyed beneath the weight of glory and eternal joy. We're longing for that day when we'll see Christ, our Savior. We'll behold the glory of our King forever. Christ, our Savior, faith will turn to sight when Christ, our life, appears. Let's patiently endure because that's worth waiting for. 
that's worth waiting for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouragement that you give to this church in Philadelphia and to us, Lord, where we're keeping your word, where we're not denying your name. May those here that are walking in that way, Lord, may they feel your pleasure. May they feel your commendation in that. And Lord, in the areas where we are not trusting in you, where we're relying on ourselves, where once we've done everything, we're like, well, I guess we could pray. God, forgive us. Forgive us of how easily and how frequently we turn to try and deliver ourselves, where we try and rely on ourselves. We become self-reliant like Shebna was teaching Jerusalem to do, where we don't consider you, where we'll, we'll be faithful with you, but now the cost is getting a lot. These people don't like me anymore over here. Lord, forgive us for where we have not remained faithful. Thank you for the grace that you have for us, Lord. And Lord, with that grace, your word tells us that where our sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. Lord, may we experience that. May we experience the fruit of the Spirit that lives in us, in our lives, in greater and greater measure, Lord, as we trust you who is sovereign, infinite in your wisdom, perfect in your love and promises access, vindication, protection, and identification to those who patiently endure. Help us, Lord, for your glory.